seated. This morning, I hope you brought your Bibles. We're going to look at a very interesting subject. It's permeating our society today, and in this series called Storm Shelter, this is one that some would say, oh my, are we going to talk about that in church? Yeah, we are. Church is a place we ought to talk about what God intended, and too often we leave it to the world to talk about what God did not intend, and we shake our heads and say, that's awful. Well, if we are not bearers of the truth and shedders of the light, then obviously the world will continue to go, grow darker. Today, the topic for our storm shelter discussion is homosexuality. And you say, oh my, we're going to talk about that? Yes, we are. But I'm not going to talk about it in the sense that you leave here feeling depressed and despondent, I pray, because what I want to do in these moments, we're going to address the issue and we're going to be very clear. But really what I want to talk about is God's intention for sexuality. I think the reason today so much is said against God or against sexuality is because we don't know God. It's amazing the further we get in deviancy in our sexuality, the more you see a hatred toward God because if we honor him, we cannot do what we're doing in sexual perversion in this country, in this generation. If we honor the body and honor what God gave us as a body, created in his image as, to be redeemed as the temple of the Holy Spirit, then our bodies would reflect the glory of God. And that's just not happening because we rejected him. Man was made for God's glory. In fact, it says in Acts chapter 7, he is the God of glory. Over and over in Scripture, it says that we're to give thanks to the Lord and glorify him. Listen, just listen to some of these, three or four or five that remind you why we're here. First Chronicles 16, given to the Lord the glory due unto his name. First Corinthians 6, glorify God in your body. Philippians 1.20, Christ shall be magnified in your body. First Peter 4.11, God in all things may be glorified. Psalm 19.1, the heavens even declare the glory of God. John 12, Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. I think you'd join with me in saying a hearty amen if we said, we are not glorifying God in this generation. Now, nowhere around us do we see on the press, in the, in the news, in the reports of heinous sexual acts, we don't see much said about the glory of God. And sadly, in church, too often, we more, are more interested in affirming man than glorifying God. We want to be sure that people are happy versus making real sure God is favored. Romans chapter 1, in fact, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn there because it really is a passage that talks about a generation in Rome that has forgotten God, and we are the new Rome. We've done some things that probably shocked the Romans. They just didn't have the same access to things that we do electronically, or they would have done the same. They were very, 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 very perverse from the house of Caesar right on down to the brothels and the streets. In Romans chapter 1, it talks about the glory of God. Paul would say in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. That's in that same text. But then he gets to verse 18 of Romans 1, and look at this. God's wrath, he's writing the church in Rome, in the city of Rome, God's wrath is now revealed from heaven against all godlessness. Now that means just what it says. All sin in the sight of God is heinous. There is no such thing as a good sin, an okay sin, an accepted sin. Sin is death. The wages of sin is death, all sin. That's what he says here. God's wrath is revealed against godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Would you say that's happening? Would you say there's certain reports that don't get told as they should be told because we want to glorify evil and suppress that which is true and good? 
Look what God said. This is amazing. 2,000-year-old document. Since what can be known, verse 19 of Romans 1, what can be known about God, surely this, I must have a misprint. What can be known about God is evident. Really? How, if it's that evident, how can a generation live as if there is no God? Well, we're going to find out. Keep in mind, he said, what I've shown you demonstrates I exist. Keep that in mind as we think about glorifying God. Verse 19, what can be known about God is evident among them. God has shown it to them through all that he's done. He's demonstrated there is a God. It's everywhere. The evidence of a creator of divine design, of intelligent design. Verse 20, for God's invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what God made. As a result, people, people are, uh-oh, as a result, people are without, what, what does your Bible say? Mine says excuse. Did, did you ever try to barter with your mama when you knew you'd done wrong? And you said, well, Johnny did it. He, she said, that's no excuse. Well, I forgot. That's no excuse. You know, when you stand before God, you say, well, God, I didn't really. He said, that's no excuse. Well, I didn't really know you were up there. That's no excuse. He said, my glory is demonstrated in my handiwork. You were not that blind. I didn't say that. God did. Look what he says. There was no excuse for what they did, how they acted. Now, now look at this. Verse 21. For though they knew God, what? They knew, they knew God. Here's that word that we're called to do. They didn't glorify him. We're called to be the glorifiers of God. They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense. I think we're there. Senseless minds were darkened. And claiming to be wise, we are there. They became fools. Why? They exchanged, here's that word again, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and four-footed animals and reptiles, and therefore God, oh my, gave up on them. He delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to their sexual impurity. Guess what? When we deny the glory of God, we begin to act in complete decadence in sexual areas. When we've taken God out of a nation, the thing that was on the rise is drugs and sex. How old is this document? 2,000 years. Hmm. Verse 24, God delivered them over in their cravings of heart to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. I think we could all agree we've done that as a culture. They worshiped and served something created, sexuality. You know the goddess of America is Aphrodite. We love our sex. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is praised forever. That's why God delivered them over to degrading passions, not elevating, not freeing, degrading. Notice these two words, eat for even. Now, ladies, hear me. When a woman loses her moral character, a culture will die. Men alone are gross. 
Men can be redeemed, but left to themselves, they are godless. In days past, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember in a small town of Humboldt, if a lady approached and a man let go a four-letter word, he'd say, oh, I'm so sorry, ma'am, I didn't see you. There was a time when women would stand against what was immoral because of protecting their children, their moral character, and their, their community. How do you know when a culture is nearing death when you cannot tell a difference in the behavior between the men and the women because both are debauched? That's what he said here. For even, verse 26, for even, there's a word of shock in the voice. Even the females exchange natural sexual desire relations for those that are unnatural and the males in the same way left natural relations with females and were inflamed in their lust males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error because they did not think it worthwhile here we are back at God they didn't think it worthwhile to acknowledge God so God delivered them over the word is he gave them up Three times he's going to say that. God gave them up. Here it is. He gave them up. He delivered them over to a worthless mind, meaning they're not capable now of even reason, rational behavior. And because of that, they do what is morally wrong. They're filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, wickedness, full of envy, murder. Would you say this sounds familiar? Envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Boy, when you take God out, the vacuum does fill up, doesn't it? Aren't we wise to turn our back on the Creator? God help us. Although they knew full well, verse 32, they know full well God's just sentence. They know, they know there's going to be a judgment. Those who practice such things deserve death because that's the wages of sin. They not only do those things, they applaud others who practice them. I think we have arrived at the level of Rome. We know God. When people want to profane a name, they don't use the name Buddha. They don't curse the name of Muhammad or Lao Tzu, Confucius. They don't say, oh, George Washington. They say God's name. We know God. We don't want to acknowledge we know God, but we know God. We know there has to be somebody out there. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, there, it, we're faced with two great difficulties that nobody's out there or somebody's out there, and either one of those should give us great concern. If nobody's out there, then this really is as good as it's ever going to be. Don't you feel depressed? And if there's somebody out there, he's going to come in righteous judgment. And many in our fellowship of friends will say, I did not realize the wrath of God could be so awful. Tragically, our godlessness is manifested in many places, but most flagrant violation in our present day is in sexuality that's being melted down because of ignoring God's principles. I don't have to give you the headlines, you hear them. Every day there's sexual misconduct about somebody in teaching, coaching, ministry somewhere that stepped across the line because everybody say, is that what a school is? Is that what a church is? Is that who those people are? And the answer is no. It just takes one bad apple to cast it out. 
We hear about another teenage girl that's gotten pregnant or one that just flat disappeared and hadn't been seen for days. Wonder where she's going to wind up. There was a day when you'd say, let's start looking for a body. Today you think, no, she's probably being trafficked and already taken to Phoenix or Los Angeles and going to be moved every week. That's why it's so hard to track them. Once they're in the hands of a trafficker, they don't stay in one place too long because they don't want them to be caught. So they'll have them in one city for a week and in a different city and a different city until they grow tired of them. And then you find their body out somewhere as no longer with us. We hear about rapes. We hear about the violations of minors in sexual areas. We hear about expansive pornography. We hear about homosexuality, polyamory. We hear today about more and more pedophilia. There's a movement afoot as we speak of broadening the base of what it can be for people to be married, if it's not just man and woman, for a man to love a boy or a man to love a little girl and join in marriage as long as the child says it's fine with me, even if the child is 12 and under. We live in a day where teenage pregnancy is rampant. AIDS and STDs are off the chart. Premarital sex is not even considered anymore as a no-no. It's just considered it should it be the first or the second date. Today we consider the present storm. We're going to examine homosexuality, but we're going to examine all sexuality and why in the world did God create something that could be so maligned to become something God never intended there's a lot of reasons to young people in the second hour they'll be sitting over here and they're really struggling we have some in our church they're struggling with not only just sexual activity but homosexuality thinking maybe I am we have some struggling a couple are struggling with gender identity why because today in media in music in magazines in curriculum, in schools, in many places, they're hearing, maybe you were born a boy, but that doesn't mean you are a boy. Well, maybe we all go back and see the Creator's manual. He just made two, male and female, and He made us one of the other. He made us one of the other. So what's the Christian view of, of sexuality? Because we don't know that, then every form of sexual misconduct is now open. If our bodies and in our, in our bodies and our sexual conduct were to glorify God. So you have to ask yourself, in my sexual life, am I glorifying God? Is there something that I'm doing in some way that brings dishonor to God? And the answer is, if I'm not a one-woman man to Janine, and she's not a one-man a, a one woman to Janine, she's not a one-woman man to me, then we're in violation. And there are things that can creep into that. Pornography is a great way to move into marriage. Say, well, I haven't been with anybody else. Well, maybe you better stop and think. Chat rooms. Today I'm amazed women more and more on chat rooms and pornography. The rate is phenomenal when surveyed across the nation. I'm thinking, why? But it's a new day. And so when you pledge, I'll be true to my mate, you promised God. If you got married in a church, you said, I join myself to my mate, you did in the presence of God. A preacher prayed over you, asking God to bless your union. You promised to love and to cherish in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You put on a wedding band to say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, till death do me part, I will be true only to one. And so if we fail in understanding God's purpose, then all sex is open because where there's godlessness, there are no boundaries. 
I want you to open your Bibles just a minute, First Thessalonians, because what I say is immaterial. What God says is eternal. Look with me, First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Look with me very quickly. First Thessalonians, Paul's letter. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Look with me beginning in verse 1. First Thessalonians 4 verse 1. Finally, brothers, now, now look at this. Paul says, I ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. In other words, I don't want, let me just share my opinion. No, Paul didn't say I'm not interested in my opinion. He said, I'm urging you and asking you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and be pleasing to God just as you're doing, do so more and more. Verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 4. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So again, he's appealed to Christ twice in two verses. He's going to do it a third time in verse 3. This is the will of God. It's your sanctification. You abstain from sexual immorality. Each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. The Lord's an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and has solemnly warned you. God didn't call us for impurity. He called us in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. What? When you disregard, when you disregard that God created you for holiness, you're not disregarding man, you're disregarding God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We know the biblical mandate for sexuality, and we know what's right and wrong. We know. Do we always do right? Do we always stand for the right? No, I, like you, I have people that I greatly admire. I have several heroes in the Christian faith. One of them is a man named Ravi Zacharias. He's a great speaker, a marvelous apologist who knows how to defend the gospel in a very clear way. I found a video of Ravi Zacharias speaking to a group when asked the question, what about homosexuality? Rather than me tell you what Ravi said, I want Ravi to tell you what Ravi said. I've got the video. I want you to watch this with me. And let's see an approach to being able to defend our faith in light of a homosexual culture. Watch this. How do you respond to non-believers who accuse Christians of being hateful to people who support lifestyles that are not according to the precepts of our faith? I think this is a very important question, and they all are, really. Um, I'd be a dishonest person if I said to you that that question doesn't worry me that I don't even think about it. In fact, we as a team, our entire team, people like Nabil Qureshi, Michael Ramsden, Oz Guinness, Amyori Ewing, our entire speakers team, have often sat around the table and said, you know, how do we deal with this very trying social issue of our time? And even though the word is not used here, the idea is, you know, the, the homosexual lifestyle and all that has come about in our time, how do we as Christians deal with it? So Joe, if you don't mind, I'd like to take an extended answer on this, you know. Let me give you about three panels of an answer. The first panel is the logical problem. The second panel is what I call the theological problem. And the third panel is what I would call the relational problem, how you communicate it. So let me take, first of all, the sociological issue here. What is the problem now? We talk about tolerance. 
So when I was at one of the prestigious universities, somebody went to the microphone and asked this question. And I said to the person, I said, I will be glad to answer your question if you will first answer mine. What kind of a culture are we living in? You have to define it for me. I said, as far as I know, there are three cultures in relation to absolute. The first, the first culture is called a theonomous culture, where the law of God is supposedly so embedded into our hearts that we all emotively or otherwise think in the same categories. Once upon a time, we would talk about the natural law in those categories, natural law. We believe these truths to be self-evident. The early framers believed in the natural law. We don't believe in natural law anymore, but we used to talk about it. And that's a theonomous culture, theos, God, nomos, law. Sometimes the Indian culture will get close to that. It's not always the case, but they sort of dharti ke admi is what they will say. We are people of the soil. And the idea of respect for parents and all of that, they consider to be self-evident, uh, ingrained in the heart of man and so on. But we don't believe in the theonomous culture in the, in the West. So what's the second kind of culture? The second kind of culture is a heteronymous culture. Heteros meaning another, nomos meaning law. So we have another law. What does that mean? The mainstream of the culture is dictated to by the leadership at the top. If you look at Marxism in secular terms, it is a heteronymous culture. The handful in the top will control the masses. If you look at Islam, it's a heteronymous culture. If you go to Saudi Arabia or you go to Iran, which are supposed to be truly Islamic countries, the mullahs or the sheikhs or who are the ayatollahs at the top will tell the masses when they must fast, when they can eat, what they must wear, what they must not wear, who they can be seen with, who they cannot be seen with. All of the dictates, even to the discipline of how you wash your hands and feet before you worship and so on. It's a heteronymous culture. The few at the top dictate it for the masses below. So I looked at the question and I said, are we a theonomous culture? He said, no. I said, are we a heteronymous culture? He said, no, we don't want the few to dictate it for the many. I said, so that leaves us with the third, which is an autonomous culture. Autos meaning self, nomos meaning law, which means each person dictates their own moral prerogatives in the sense. I said, are we an autonomous culture? He said, yes. I said, all right, now tell me this. If we are an autonomous culture, and I answer your question, are you going to give me the privilege of my autonomy too? Or as soon as you disagree with my answer, you will switch to a heteronymous mode and dictate for me what I must believe as well. That is the sociological dilemma. That is the sociological dilemma, because if A disagrees with B, it's not just that A is being enforcing his or her principles upon B, but B wants to enforce his or her principles upon A. So there's a mutual autocracy being sought here, but it is never going to be consistent in a culture that is neither theonomous nor heteronomous. Autonomous cultures run into a conflict where everybody has their own autonomy. That's the, law, that's the sociological issue. You move beyond that then to the theological issue. The theological issue is this way. Years ago, I was doing some open forums at uh, Indiana University, and a press reporter was, I was there with Dallas Willard, we were both doing the defense of the Christian faith, and a press reporter came and said she was filming some uh, religious actions on campus for, for their network and so on. Uh, do you mind if we tape what you're going to talk about tonight? I said, no, that's all right, you're welcome. But she, then she startled me by saying, we'll only be there for about five minutes. 
and then we'll be packing up and leaving. I hope we won't disturb you. And I thought, well, this is what the news does with a talk, takes five minutes of it, and then tells people that this is what was said, you know? I thought, okay, I wasn't going to argue with that. I said, ma'am, you're welcome to leave. Just tell your crew to be very quiet, because once I get into the thick of it, I really don't like the distraction, and they'll be quiet, slipping out, I'll be okay. She stayed the whole time, stayed for the whole talk, stayed for the Q&A. And then she said, can I walk you back to where you're staying? I was staying on the campus. I said, right, and she was walking with me. It's quite dark at this time. And she says, um, I have a question for you. I said, is this on the record or is this an off the record question? <laughs> she said, no, this is for me. I said, so you promised me this is just between you and me and Arthur Prentice's answer. I said, no, okay. I said, all right, I just want to know. And so she said, you know, I have a problem with Christianity and here's my problem. Christians are generally against racism, but when it comes to the homosexual, they discriminate against the homosexual. How do you explain that? I said, I find your comments so interesting. In the first part of the question, it's an ism you're talking about. In the second part of the question, you particularize it with an individual. So I'm just fascinated by that, but that's okay. I said, here's what I want to say to you. The reason we believe that discrimination ethnically is wrong is because the race and ethnicity of a person is sacred. You do not violate a person's ethnicity and race. It is a sacred gift. And the reason we believe in an absoluteness to sexuality is because we believe sexuality is sacred as well. And that's why we make our choice that same way. I said, you will help me if you will tell me why you treat race as sacred and desacralize sexuality. She was very quiet. She said, I've never thought of it in those terms. Here's what I want to say to you. Marriage, as God has given it to us, and if you take the whole corpus of the worldview, is the most sacred relationship into which you will enter. Because love is given one word in English, but there are four words in the Greek. Agape, eros, storge, and agape, phileo, storge, and eros. Agape is God's love. Phileo is friendship love or brotherly love. Storge is protective love or parental love. Eros is romantic love. I said, do you realize marriage is the only one that pulls these four together? Agape. Phileo, storge, and eros. I said, and if you take agape out of that, eros is gone for whatever you want to do. Romantic love becomes redefined. And to us, the Bible gives the sacredness of marriage as Christ is to the church, the bridegroom and the bride. And in that sacredness and the beauty of a consummate relationship between a man and a woman, as it is shown in the singular commitment of the marital vow, I do and I will. When you say I do to the one, you say I don't to all of the others. And you say I will to one, you're saying I won't to all of the others. So any departure from that beauty and sacredness of the four confluences of love is a biblical notion of what it really means to be married. And to just take one behavior and make it look like it's aberrant is not right. All departures from that are not acceptable in the sight of God. The theological position is a consummate relationship 
between a man and a woman in the procreative act and in the sacredness and paying each other the ultimate compliment of taking each other at their word. So theologically, this is the way we see it. Sociologically, we've been put into a conundrum. So we come then in relationally, how do we deal with it? And here's the hard part. But you know what? And my wife will tell you this, others will tell you this who know me. I accept people with a love and a genuineness regardless of what their view is on anything, if it's different to mine. I have learned to love humanity. I can put my arm around a person who has a different view on marriage or a different view on politics or whatever and just say, you know, God gives you the most sacred gift of the prerogative of choice, but God does not give you the privilege of determining a different outcome to what the choice will entail. The consequences are bound to the choice. And you go right back to the book of Genesis and it tells you, you do what is right, will not you will you not be accepted. But if you don't, sin stalks at the, at the door, desires to have you. And so when I look at the sacredness of marriage, any change from it from the biblical point of view is a departure from the biblical mandate. But at the same time, the Bible commands us to love even those with whom we disagree. And our responsibility as the church is never to hate the individual. Our privilege is to love. And only God can change the heart of a person. And God is the ultimate judge. And in a pluralistic society, let us as Christians be both light and salt and learn to love one another. And let God be the judge over all of us. He is the one who is pure in his judgments. We can make errors. Those are the three panels I want to leave with you. Sometimes it surprises people to find out that the ultimate designer of sex was God. We want to believe that sex is something man discovered and suddenly we can do whatever we want to with our bodies and with the sexual act for we are really just the upper end of an animal creation. We have no God. We have evolved over the centuries and now we're the upper end. We can do whatever we want. Well, you've left out a very important person. It was God who created man, and God who said, man, it's not good for man to be alone. And that's true in every part of life, including the companionship and relationship that we enjoy in marriage. God didn't, when he saw Adam alone, he didn't create a fraternity and say, okay, boys, y'all have a great time. He didn't create a village. He didn't create a community. He didn't create an animal capable of enjoying fellowship with Adam. He took from Adam's side a rib, and he fashioned a woman it was God who presented her to the man. We so often see a father walk a bride down the aisle, and we think that's just Western culture. That's biblical theology. God created Eve and says he, he, God presented her to the man. Can you see Eve under the arm of God? Can you see Adam when he saw God introducing him to his mate? Can you imagine the joy in his heart when he realized, wow, there's somebody like me, but not like me at all. And she's coming with God, and God said, Adam, I saw you alone, son. I've given you, I created somebody to give to you, and you give yourself to her completely. I don't think he said, well, do you have a plan B? I don't think she said, well, is there more than one I could choose from in case I get bored? The truth is their joy in each other was enough to say God is good. And what he's created for us is good. Marriage is where we give ourselves away in every way. 
When I joined my life to Janine Garland 43 years ago, I promised to give her every part of my life, my energy, my time, our money was to be shared, our home, the food we ate together, emotional support for each other, and attention to her needs when she says, I, I really need you to do this. I, I, I need to be available to do that. In marriage, sex belongs in marriage as a full surrender. The reason sex today is so perverse is because we've changed it from the giving of self to what I'm going to take from you. No wonder we see sex as dirty and ugly and so many women are bruised and hurt, not just physically but emotionally and mentally because the way they were treated in a sexual act by a deviant man. You say, well, now, wait a minute. I don't know what you called every man a deviant. I didn't call every man a deviant. But when a man refuses to treat a lady as the creation of God entrusted to man to be cherished and honored and loved and respected and protected as coming from his side and to guard her with his very life, when he does anything less than that, then truly what he's done is violate God's law for sexuality and his plan in marriage. And by the way, I'm talking about marriage because if we understand the perfect, it, we pretty quickly understand what's not God's will. In marriage, the perfect part is when a man and a woman so love each other that they first of all make a promise. They don't just move in together like today's generation. And if I step on some toes, forgive me. We've gotten the, we've gotten the course backwards we move in together too often in this culture and say, well, I'm going to see whether or not I like you. And if I like you enough down the road, if we get pregnant, we'll decide if we want to get married. Wrong. God didn't say, I want you to have a, a two-year tryout period and live with each other, act like you're married. And then if you don't want to be married, go pick somebody else and do it again. No. Marriage is when you find that one person that you say, it's not, can I live with them? That, that's today. Somebody else say, well, I, I think I could live with her. I, that's, the, that's the wrong answer. Marriage is when you find that person say, that you say, I can't live without them. After 43 years of marriage, I've been with you when some of you buried your mates. Some of you have been married 50, 60 years, and you say with tears in your eyes, Pastor, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I don't think I can live without her. These ladies who stand at the coffin, their husbands say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't remember life before him. I don't know that I can live without him. God's intention is such a bond of one soul with another that when marriage vow is taken and the pledges are made and that dating relationship is a time to get to know each other in so many areas before you know the physical. If you short circuit and go right to the physical, then you're not going to spend the time getting to know each other other ways because you're driven to that. If you're really going to be married, you need to know, can we be one financially? Can we be one spiritually? Can we be one in goals? Can we be one emotionally? Can we be one socially? Because, see, ultimately, the act of marriage is the picture of marriage. When two people come together, and by the way, God only made a male and female to come together in an appropriate manner. You say, well, no, that's now two people can. No. God made parts so in conjugal marriage they fit. The picture is God made them. Now you're going to have to decide do I have a worldview or a biblical view? By biblical view, God made them male and He made them female. There are only two choices. He didn't make Adam a friend named Steve so they could be together in the garden. 
He didn't give Eve another choice with another lady to say, here, you can be with her. He made a male and a female and said, you, you are to be together. In that moment when a man and woman come together as a married couple, and this is where our generation has so missed what sex is. Sex is not, boy, I'm going to take what's mine. I, I, can't, I can't wait to get, I can't wait to take her. I can't wait to get him. How sad. No wonder we're confused when we hear about being a picture of Christ and his bride. We see it almost as a conquest or an assault. That's not the picture. The picture of marriage is when a man so loves a lady that he addresses what she wants to hear most, and he means it. I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to defend you and honor you and love you. I'm going to stand with you through thick and thin. I, I, I'm going to be everything I can possibly be to make sure your daddy is glad that he put your hand under my arm in an altar. I want to make real sure your mama knows that if I'm married to you, she never has to go to bed at night and wonder, is my daughter going to wake up bruised or beat up? Is he going to walk out on her and go off with some other woman? I, I want to know, Nick, are you the kind of man I can give my daughter to? And I want my word to be my bond. And so when I gave myself to Janine in word, then the beauty is when she reciprocates and says, then I want to be to you everything that you need in a mate. I want to be there by your side. I want to encourage you. I'd like to have your children. I, I want us to build a home. I, I want to know if I'm hurting, I can come to you. And when you're hurting, I want you to know my arms are open. You can come to me. And when she gave herself to me physically, and I gave myself to her physically, it wasn't, I'm going to take something. It was a surrender. What's the picture in Scripture? A man is to love the Lord uh, to love his wife as Christ loves the church. Did Jesus say, I'm going to get you? No. He laid down his life. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then there's people that rankle and bristle when they hear, and wives submit to your husbands, but don't forget the, don't forget the line that says, as the church is submissive to Christ. Do you wonder some of times why we're so messed up in marriage? Because the church too often decides, well, I don't have to do that. Well, there's your marriage. I, I know what you said, but it may be in the Bible, but I don't have to do that. You see, when we move out from God's plan, then we enter into pain. God didn't make sex for promiscuity or pornography or perversion. He made sex for pleasure. Most of you in here are married. You know good and well that when, you've, when you can be alone with your mate, there's nowhere you'd rather be nowhere and so the Bible teaches us God had a plan for us when, when people say I don't think that God understands sexuality you didn't read the manual read Song of Solomon in a modern version yeah, I, think he got, I think he gets it the Bible teaches us God designed sex for the man to give himself to the woman and the woman to the man so the two could be one and by the way the most intimate act between a man and a woman is what they do when, when, when marriage is joined in a sexual act. That, that's why you don't do that with anybody else. And when a man does that with another person in adultery or fornication or through pornography, what he's really said to his wife, well, you know, it really doesn't matter. You know what you just said to her? No part of our life matters if the most intimate act between us we can violate 
then I don't know. It really matters financially what we do. It doesn't matter socially. I could care about less about you spiritually. I'm not real interested in you in any area of life. You know why? Because if the most intimate act is trashed, then it makes everything else under question. For the two to become one is the joining of every part of life together. So, so you say, well, preacher, you're talking about a man and a woman. I'm talking to you about God's ideal. Counterfeiters never study the counterfeit. They always study the real bill. Real bill. The real deal with God is marriage. It's not taking of something. It's giving yourself fully, openly, lovingly, and trust and intimacy with another person with whom you share life. God's principle for sex is that sex is be a part of marriage. It, it's, it's enjoyable, but it's also a picture of two givings. First, you've got to give yourself to God. Too many sexual relationships are godless, so therefore they are empty. When, when all you do in, in, in sex is to look for sex for the purpose of pleasure, then before long you lose it. But when you look for, for sex as a purpose of entering into giving yourself fully to another person, how am I supposed to give myself to God? Completely. No reserves. Nothing hidden. In marriage, there's nothing hidden. If you treat God's relationship first as what you two enjoy together, then when you come together in that way, it's not ugly and sordid. It's rather an act of sacredness. I get to be with one person like no other person. What a privilege because she desires to be with me. That's what God's intention is. Give yourself first to God and then to your mate. Not to manipulate or punish or use sex as a leverage. Well, if you do this, we may do something tonight. No, it's not to be used. It's not something to be treated with lightness or contempt. It's, it's a means of demonstrating fullness of love. It's something you say, this is reserved only for us. A husband and wife and the togetherness of a bond. It's the context of Ephesians where it says, Husbands, love your wives. And wives, submit to your husbands. No wife ever said to me, Preacher, I just can't stay married. My, wife, my husband loves me too much like Jesus, and it's just too convicting. I've never had a woman come to me in 43 years of being a pastor say, My husband's too much like Jesus. I just can't submit to him. I can't honor him in that way. And rarely have I had a husband say, My wife is just so eager to let me lead spiritually in our home I, I, I feel totally I, I feel totally I got to get out of here she just she just way too dependent on my, me leading now there's some men pretty derelict at leading but those that are derelict are rarely offended by a wife that does they say well I'm sure glad you want to do that you, you press on I'm all with you you just abdicated your primary role in the marriage let my wife lead us in the Bible studies. Let, let my wife do the praying. I, I do the bread winning. Well, maybe you ought to read the book because the priest of the home is the husband. That's God's intention. The other thing I would say to you, God not only made the principle that a husband and wife love each other like Christ loves his church, but third thing is pleasure. You see, first of all, it's for procreation. It's also procreation that two people get to partner with God in creating this new being. But in the act of that, there is pleasure. Now, here's something called the hedonistic paradox. You and I are seeing people on television being outed for being sexual predators. And the tragedy is there are many, 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 many men that are that way. Tragic. Because they're godless. When you 
take God out of the equation, you become, you become a very ugly person. And here's the problem. When all I do is try to pursue sex for pleasure, it's the law of diminishing returns. It's called a hedonistic paradox. What does that mean? If all I look for is pleasure in sex before long, what used to give me pleasure doesn't pleasure me anymore. So what do we got to do? I got to go a step further, either in deviancy, violence, ugliness, something, because this doesn't do it for me. So I'm going to notch it up. And before long, that doesn't give me pleasure. God notch it up. And before long, I'm so far removed from what I started out just to do for pleasure that now I've become a monster. The same is true. It's very similar to drugs. You start with something as simple as marijuana and say, well, that, that's not so bad, but before long, that just doesn't do it for you. And so you've got to go something stronger. See, the law of diminishing returns says to get the same buzz I had here, I've got to intensify. Well, if I'm moving away from God to get the same thrill physically that I got initially, I've got to get deeper in the well. God intended marriage to be for one man, one woman, for life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you can just remember that. 1 Corinthians 6, let me just read it quickly because I want you to see something. The body's not meant for sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, 15, uh, 13. The body's not meant for sexual immorality. The body's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then, Paul writes, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it's written, the two is going to become one. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. Listen to this. Every other sin, meaning every sin other than sexual sin, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I want you to see something here. We found a video Todd did, and I, I saw it, and I was so moved. I want you to see it, because sometimes we, we think that somebody struggling with homosexuality won't ever come back. Can I just say one thing? We're going to watch this. Let me remind you, sex was created by God with a purpose. Whenever I step out as God's plan for sex, I step out of the will of God. Did you hear me? The world is beating us up because too often churches really come down hard on homosexuality. We say, isn't that interesting? You don't come down that hard on adultery. You don't come down that hard on pornography. You, you, you've not come down that hard on other acts of sexual misconduct. And you know what? Too often they're true. If you would imagine sex, this is a bad illustration, but best one I got. If you took a piece of tape and you put that tape down on a table and you pulled it up, put it back down, pulled it up, put it back down, that's the picture the person says, I just want sex. I, I just, I'm not interested in a relationship. I don't want to be your husband. I don't want to take on your kids. I know. I just want sex. How many times can you pull that tape up before it doesn't stick at all? God didn't make us to be serial sexist. 
He made us to be one man and one woman given to each other. And listen, the more this is in place and all of your lives coming together, the sweeter the picture of being together this way. When this is not good, guess what? This is not good. When this is coming together as it should, this is wonderful. I want you to see a young lady that struggles stepping way out of God's bounds in the area of homosexuality. Let's see what happened with her. Watch this. I was 15 and I started dating a girl that lived down the street from me. It was my first time ever dating someone and being official. I was pretty pumped. I got a hickey. My dad saw it and was livid. I love her. It's a girl and I'm gonna be with her and this is how it is. Yeah, it went terribly. I guess she told some people and so they came to me and asked me, are you and her gay together? I can either cower away or I can own it, so I'm gonna own it. I said, yeah, what about it? Love is not necessarily between a man and a woman. The problem was backwards thinking. But if you were truly a Christian, you were on my side. And if not, you were legalistic and you needed to reread what God was really about. Judge not. God being loved meant God was nice and God was chill with what you were cool with. By 18 and 19 and 20, I was super wild and in serial relationships with women. When I got to nursing school, I met the girl that I ended up being engaged to. I kind of slowed down a little bit for her because she had two kids. And then at 22, I got invited to a Bible study. I expected them to bring up my lifestyle really early and then would use that as justification for not coming back. So I agreed to go. Different women in the circle were talking about different experiences they had. I have nothing like that and it bugged me. I could not stop thinking, what if all of it's true? Are you sure this is who you are? I couldn't stop questioning. I need to feel okay, because I don't feel okay anymore. I googled verses on homosexuality. Those who practice homosexuality, which was me, and also drunkards and a, a bunch of other things that I would have been. I realized that I was in the will not enter the kingdom of God lineup and it scared me really, really bad. And then I read verse 11 and it says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. I realized that there were people in the same place and they were saved and they were changed and that, that God could do that for me too and that I needed that. I could hold on to my sin and reject God or I could turn to Him. All the debt that I'd racked up living like I lived didn't have to be mine if I could trust Him. So that was it. I knew what I wasn't gonna do because it was right there, it was black and white. I'd twisted those scriptures before. I'd argued them down. I'd said judge not to them like that mattered. And then that day, it was like my eyes were really opened. I was amazed at the grace he'd shown me.
People say to me all the time, I was born this way. I say, okay, yeah, me too. You're not born with right affections. That's why Jesus had to come. You feeling a desire for sin just proves you need grace like me. It's not gay to straight. It's lost to saved. God calls us not to heterosexuality, but to holiness. Even though the world would paint a, a totally different story about what sexuality is and isn't, God's word is clear and he can save, and he does, and he will. Share one the word and we've got to go, I'm late. Some of you are in a marriage where the two of you have decided, I will not give myself to my mate. I'm not interested. I'm mad. I'm just burned out. Listen to me. God didn't give us an option. God told us to love our wives as Christ loved the church. He doesn't burn out on us. He never withholds a blessing from us. His love from us, his goodness, his grace. If you're in a marriage where one way or the other says, I, I, I just don't, we're not going to do anything to contact each other in that way, I'd beg you today, get on your knees and get back with God's ideal. Some of you in the room this morning say, Brother Nick, my son or daughter is trapped in a gay lifestyle and I don't know what to do. Did you hear what this young lady said? I realized when I got in the Word of God, it's not about gay and straight, it's about lost and saved. Pray for the salvation. Pray, pray for the heart to be changed. Pray for God to convict. Maybe some of you here have had a sexual past where it was, uh, an, there was an uh, affair that created a divorce or an affair that brought a wound in your marriage. Listen, if God cannot forgive sexual sin, he can't forgive all sin. My, my goal today is not to bash sexual sin. My goal today is to say, am I in line with God's ideal? And if I'm in tune with God's ideal, then I know the joy of the Lord. If I'm not, I beg you, get to that place where together you say, I want to get in line with God's perfect will so we can have a home that pleases Him. I'm going to do something different this morning because I'm not going to give a standard invitation. Typically when we do that, this type of message makes people real uncomfortable. It may be that somebody today came to join the church. If so, pastors, I'm going to ask you to kind of be here on the sides. And if you came to join the church or make a profession of faith in a minute, I want you to just come tell them real quickly. We'll get your information. If you came today because you say, I really need prayer in this area, the pastor's going to remain on the sides, close the service. And maybe it's about a friend, a co-worker. Some of you are sitting in an office where every day a person is struggling. And you would say, what can I do? I've done a sheet it's out there on the, on, the, on the reception desk that lists scriptures, books, and video sites about both job loss last week and homosexuality. Get one of those sheets and refer to your friend, your son, your daughter, your family member. Then what do we need to do? We just need to pray for this nation that the righteousness of God would prevail in the hearts of people to desire God above godlessness and purity above promiscuity. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, would you? We're not going to sing. The hour's late. It's 1035, so I've got to get you to Sunday school. But you need to come. Make some commitment. I want to join the church today. I want to come for baptism. The pastor.